This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. So welcome to Chavetz Chaim, uh, yard site. We're talking about Chavetz Chaim. Chavetz Chaim was born on the 11th day of Shvat, 1839, to Rav Aryeh Zev Hakohem and his wife, the Brusha. The Brusha, I think I pronounced right. In the small town of Zetel in Grodno, Polish Lithuania. So he's born in in Grodno, Polish Lithuania, on the eleventh of Shvat. His father was a shopkeeper with very few material assets. However, he was from a very distinguished family. His father, Chavetz father of Ariyazev, was a very devout Jew and very learned Torah scholar. And people of learning would refer to him as a Talmudist. And he was especially versed in the writings of the Maram Shif, at the back of the Gemara, you'll find Maram Shif. In his youth, the Chavetz Chaim's father studied at the famous Yeshiva Velazhin, when Rav Chaim Velazhin was still alive. So imagine, the Chavetz Chaim's father was a student of the Velazhin Yeshiva from Rav Chaim Velazhin. As a young man, Rav Ariyazev, his father, had continued his studies in Vilna, at the Beit Midrash of Rav Chaim Nachman Parnas, was also a branch of the Velazhin Yeshiva. And to support himself, he tutored several wealthy youngsters in Gemara and would send part of his earnings home to his wife. His wife, the Brusha, was a very devout, God-fearing woman. And she wouldn't even rely on the Eruv. She was so strict, she wouldn't rely on the Eruv. She wouldn't carry anything in the Eruv, not even a key. She would spend her Shabbat immersed in the Sidra of the week and all the Midrashim around it. And obviously, her, the book of Tili was hardly out of her hand. And she had a special book of Tachinot, of special prayers. So now, the Chavetz Chaim's father, as in those days, it was, it was very customary that people died early. And the Chavetz Chaim's father had married the second wife, the Brusha, was the second wife. He had three children from his first wife. He passed away. And then he married the Brusha. And from the Brusha came the Chavetz Chaim. He was her only son. She was praying like Hannah. We're going to mention the Haftarah. This is coming uh, Rosh Hashanah. First day of Rosh Hashanah is Hannah, the Haftarah of Hannah. And the Brusha never had any children. She was crying, praying, pleading with Hashem. And finally she got a son, Chavetz Chaim. They called his name. Israel Meir. Israel means obviously Israel. But Meir means the light. To light up, she wanted them to light up all of Israel. Israel Meir, he's going to light up the whole world. So he's going to light up the Jewish world. And she cast a glance at her son, it says. It seemed to her he was smiling at her. In his beautiful, shining eyes, she saw a promise of a hope that he would become a big Talmud Hacham. So he was born, and the mother and the father were very, very happy with the little Israel mayor. Now, since the earliest childhood, he had the signs of a prodigy. He had tremendous zest for learning Torah, very, very early age. He was eager to learn Torah, and he became one of the best, youngest students in town. And in later years, he related when he was small, his father once took him along to a trip in Vilna, and brought him to a distinguished scholar to test him 
in his knowledge of the Talmud. When the evaluation was over, the learned rabbi pinched his teeth and said, you're a good boy. Take care, my dear child, that you should not lose your name. What do you mean, lose your name? Because his name was Israel Meir. He should be a teacher, a light for Israel. So Israel illuminates, and that was his job, to illuminate the rest of the people. His father used to relate. One day, when the two were in Vilna together, his beloved Israel Meir fell asleep over the volume of Talmud he was studying. Imagine the boy learning Talmud and fell asleep. The father lifted the sleeping boy and carried him to his bed. When the father came back a few hours later, he found his, his son was awake in the bed, sitting up, learning the Talmud. <laughs> so he would fall asleep, and as soon as he woke up, he would start learning again. Amazing. Even from his early childhood years, whoever was knew him, he had tremendous integrity, innocence, and simplicity. Once, in the marketplace with the other children, they were running around the marketplace, there was a woman selling apples, and her basket fell over. Gleefully, some kids took apples and ran away. Little Israel Mayor did the same thing, but when later on when his father told him about not stealing, he asked his mother for a kopek, a small account coin, and he went back to the woman and said, I want to buy an apple. She gave him an apple, he gave her the money, and he put the apple back on the, on the, on the counter. He just didn't want to see, he wanted to return stolen property. So you can see how ethical he became. Chalitzheim was very ethical at the time. There was another trick that boys in town would play on the water carrier. Poor, poor Jewish man carrying water to all the houses. You can imagine in Poland how freezing cold it was at night. So uh, one trick the boys played was they'd fill the guy's bucket with water, leave it overnight and freeze. The poor water carrier would have to come in the morning and smash the ice to be able to fill his bucket. So what did Rabbi Israel Meir do, little Israel Meir? He would go before, just before dark, when he knew the boys were going to bed, and empty out the buckets they had filled with water. So that the water carrier would not have the burden of breaking the ice. Amazing. He's a little kid. So uh, he had mercy on, on other people and uh, would try and uh, rectify the tricks the other kids would play on these people. Um, at the age of 10, unfortunately, his father passed away. Terrible tragedy. His father, who taught him the Torah he knew, passed away. And uh, he died in a cholera, cholera epidemic. His main concern when he was dying was, who will raise his son, Israel Meir, to Torah and good deeds, unfortunately. However, his mother took over. His pious mother, she earned a livelihood. She kept an eye on her son. Uh, the Chavetz Chaim had an older half-brother of Aaron, and he was also a fine Torah scholar, and he made sure that, that the Chavetz Chaim was learning Torah as a young boy. So he lost his, lost his father at the age of 10, and his stepbrother is teaching him Torah and helping him. Meanwhile, his widowed mother, as usual in those days, married again. Now he's a stepfather. Her second husband was Rav Shimon, who lived in Radin. And that's when the family moved to Radin. She married Shimon, and she moved to Radin. He was financially successful and learned. He also had children as well from his previous marriage. So that both widow and widower marry again. One brings one child. I think he had three children from a previous marriage. And the Chaim 
was supported by Rabbi Shimon. And Shimon, however, was hardly home. Why? He was in the Vilna trying to learn Torah. Imagine these, these people at Sadiqim, they would run, leave their house, leave their wives, leave the family, the little business, and go and study Torah as much as possible. Okay, so we have to know, Vilna was the main city at that time of Torah learning. Vilna was the, Vilna Gaon was the rabbi at one time. And uh, eventually the Velazhin Yeshiva was built there by Rav Chaim Velazhin. And the young Israel mayor went to Vilna and he studied with Rav Chaim Nachman Parnas, who was the teacher of his father. Imagine, so he's studying now with his father's teacher. And a relative of Chaim Nachman, named Rabbi Israel Gordon, would take the Chavetz Chaim home to teach his son, and he would pay him. That's how the Chavetz Chaim learned his okay, keep. A very, very nice mitzvah to do to take this young boy and let him teach his son and pay him to teach. Amazing, fantastic. Okay. So, uh, this man was a big tzaddik, his, his Rebbe, and he had another Rebbe called Rav Yaakov Brit, who was uh, another teacher of the Chavetz Haim. And he got him into the yeshiva of the Beit Midrash of Rav Chaim Parnas, as we mentioned before. So uh, the learned Talmudist of Rav Yaakov Brit, he got a shirim in the, the yeshiva of Rav Parnas, and he also taught the Chavetz Haim. Okay. Um, in his early period, it's interesting, Vilna had a lot of maskilim. What are maskilim? Uh, people believed that the Orthodox Jewish way was false or wrong. And they would try and bring in secular studies and persuade religious boys, especially, to go to college and study uh, secular studies and tell, uh, try and persuade them that the Torah is wrong and it's out of date, you don't need it anymore. And they tried to do that to the Chavetz Chaim uh, because the Chavetz Chaim is one of the stars of the yeshiva. They wanted to get the stars. They focused on the Chavetz Chaim, one of the stars of the yeshiva. And the Chavetz Chaim was incorruptible. He was incorruptible. He had this strong emunah. cannot be corrupted. When he was just 16, many marriage offers came to the Chavetz Chaim because he was the genius of the yeshiva. The only problem he had was he was very short. He was barely five foot. That's the only problem he had to get a shidduch. Otherwise, they were all running after him. Many distinguished families, dowries of thousands of rubles. He could have been very rich. He could have sat, sat home and, and learned. So, he was very much in demand. And he was uh, well-versed in the Talmud. Can you imagine that? At a very early age, he was well-versed in the Talmud. At the same time, the rich people of Vilna tried to get him to marry their daughters. His father-in-law, his, father, his stepfather, also had a daughter. And his stepfather wanted Chavetz Chaim to marry his daughter. Stepfather, he wants his Chavetz Chaim to marry his stepdaughter. Right? Yeah, his stepsister. Mm-hmm. So stepfather had a daughter. He wants Chavetz Chaim to marry his daughter. Well, that's such a big coming chacham. I want it for my daughter. The boy's mother, the wife of the stepfather, said, "Ah, uh-uh, I don't want him to marry your daughter. Number one is she's, she's older. She's older than him. And number two, you don't have the money to look after him, so you can learn Torah without any effort." So it, was, it led to a tremendous fight in the house between his mother, Chavetz Chaim's mother, and the Chavetz Chaim's stepfather. And it led to such a big fight, a row, 
or my daughter's not big enough for your son. I want my son to marry your daughter. My, my daughter, he's not big enough. You don't like my daughter, I don't like you. I don't like you. But I left a big fight, row in the house, to the point where it could have led to divorce. Okay, so what happened? She was ready, his mother was ready to leave her husband because of this. Because the husband said, I want him to marry my daughter. And the mother said, your daughter's not good enough for my, my son. She's older, she can't support him, and he can, he can get a better shidduch elsewhere. So the stepfather of Shimon goes to Vilna, he goes to his beloved stepson, he loved his stepson, Chaim, invited him to home, come to Radin, come and spend Yom Tov with us in Radin. Chaim comes, he spends several weeks in Radin, in the interval, the stepfather's trying to make the shidduch with his daughter. Please. He has a daughter, a talk, see if you like her. And by chance, the Chavetz Chaim found out there was a big friction between his mother and his stepfather about this. And his mother's strong opposition to the point where she was ready to leave her husband if the, he would push the Chavetz Chaim to marry his daughter. Chavetz Chaim told his mother, you're not allowed to leave your husband. I will not let you break the shalom bite of the house. I'm willing to marry this girl. Wow, this is what a... I see already his uh, fine-tuning, the Chabad sign. He made it clear he was willing to marry the girl. He begged his mother's gifts consent. And eventually, the couple was engaged. But before that, his stepbrother from the first husband, uh, from the first... Uh, this woman, first husband, his stepbrother, he had a stepbrother from a previous marriage, um, was very much against him marrying his stepsister, the second stepsister, and he thought he could get a better shidduch, and he started fighting with his brother, the young Chavetz Chaim, who he felt like, I'm his father. His father died, Chavetz Chaim's father died, the stepbrother felt, I am like his father. I, w- I taught him Torah, he has to listen to me. Chavetz Chaim says, I'm not listening to you. It's going to destroy my mother and my stepfather's shalom bayit. I'm going to marry this girl. I like this girl. So Rav Aaron, that was the step, stepbrother's name, he ran to come home before the Tanaim could be signed, before the engagement. And on the way home, his coach wheel broke. He got stuck, stranded on the road for a couple of hours. By the time he came, it was too late. Everything was signed. Nevertheless, Rav Aaron says, have a time, annul the engagement. It's not right. You know, doing the right thing. He started screaming at him, shouting at him. And he was upset for many months after that. Nevertheless, Avasayim was able. He's going to marry his stepsister and to make Shalom Bayit between his, his mother and his stepfather. The one who was against it, was that? Well, first his mother was against it, but he calmed her down. Rav Aram was his brother from the first, from the first husband. But not the... Not blood relative. To the girl. No, no, no relation to the girl. So it was from a different marriage. Different. From his father's... Chavetz Chaim's father died when Chavetz Chaim was 10. His mother marries the second husband. So this brother was from a f- previous uh, marriage. The, his father, his, his blood father, had two wives. Chavetz Chaim is born from the second wife, and this brother was from the first wife. The father dies when Chavetz Chaim is 10, and his mother gets married again to... Uh, second husband. So he had two stepsisters 
and he has a stepbrother from a previous marriage. From the fa- his father's side, he has a stepbrother. From his mother's side, he has, from the stepfather's side, he has another stepsister. Complicated. Okay. So what happened? Um, the Chavetz Chaim says, money is not an issue. Why? He had a friend who got a 10,000 ruble uh, dowry. His friend, Chavetz Chaim's friend, was a tremendously smart Tamil Chacham, got a 10,000 ruble dowry. After a while, he's being supported by his father-in-law, father-in-law, father-in-law. The father-in-law says, come and join my business. And the, the boy joined the business with his father-in-law, gets involved with the money and the business, and forgets most of his Torah. Chavaz Chaim says, I'm not interested in money. I see what happens to money. I'll marry this girl with no money. Can you imagine? His own stepsister. He married his stepsister. He got 300 rubles instead of 10,000. 300 rubles dowry. And he got, half a, he got half of it in property. He gave him a land, a little house. And that land he used eventually to build the yeshiva, the Chavetz Chaim. There's the famous yeshiva of Radan. Imagine he built it himself, the Chavetz Chaim. Big study, Chavetz Chaim. We're going to see. The wedding took place in 1855 when the bridegroom was 17. Why? If we quote a pasuk, it says, Yosef was 17 years of age when he left his parents' house and went into the world on his own. I got married when I was 17 and left my mother's house. His father, father-in-law promised him a dowry of 300 rubles. He gave him a small house with a plot of land worth about 150 and he obliged himself to pay the rest in cash. Unfortunately, his father-in-law became very poor straight after that, unfortunately. So he got 150 rubles in land and a house, but the other 150 rubles didn't materialize. Plus his father-in-law said, I'm going to support you at my table. Nothing to eat on the table. Nothing. So despite his financial circumstances, he continued learning Torah. Amazing, amazing. Every day, he spent time on Tanakh. Mechila Torah, Nevi'im, Tuvim, Halakha, Midrashim, Musar. He didn't slink him out all day. He was an all-rounder. The Chavetz was an all-rounder. He learned everything. He sat in the Beit Midrash all by himself in a corner behind the bima, or in the women's section. So all day long he was learning Torah. And he didn't even go home most days of the week. He would sleep on the bench in the Beit Midrash, placing two small pillows under his bed. Unbelievable how he slept. Once he learned two pious women were making rounds to collect feathers to make pillows and quilts for a prospective bride who was destitute. He gave her, them, his two pillows. Imagine, now he has nothing, just a bench to sleep on. When his wife learned of this, she asked for the pillows to clean them before Pesach. You've got to wash the pillows before Pesach, chametz, whatever. He said, I don't have pillows, I gave them away. That's how she found out. He would really talk even with other scholars. He was always on guard against Lashon Hara. Amazing, amazing. The young scholars of the Beit Midrash became aware almost every day at the same time Israel may have disappeared. It's a mystery. We're going to go follow him and see what's going on. They began following him and so he went to the nearby woods, the forest, and they saw he was standing in front of a pit. And then they heard him talking to himself. You have a yearning for honor, Israel Mayor. Maybe you learned a little Torah today. You think you're going to so great, huh? This is where you're going to end up. You're going to be buried in a pit one day. Imagine. He's talking to his ego. He's trying to calm down his ego. You're so, you want honor, Israel Mayor. So you see how great this person was, how ethical, how uh, Musar. He was a Musar person. 
Musar. All the Talmudic scholars in Radin soon became, they knew about this young Talmudist. They tried to become friendly with him. And they would ask him, why don't you become friendly with us? He said, first, I am trying to draw close to the Holy One and His Holy Torah. And then friendship will come by itself. My priority is the Holy One and the Torah, and then other friendships would come. And sure enough, at a certain time, he got became very friendly. Now what happens is, there's a big fight in town against the local rabbi. Uh-oh. Don't get any ideas over here, okay? <laughs> rabbi Eliyahu Margolis. He was the local rabbi. And the rabbi says, I'm not going to get involved with this fight. The rabbi just packed his bags and left the town. So now the town is left with no rabbi. Hey, who is the most suitable person to be the rabbi of the town? Oh! Israel Meir. He's Talmud Tacham. Israel Meir, this young Israel Meir. We want him to become the rabbi. And this was every parent's desire that their child become a rabbi. Because when you're a rabbi, you have a parnasah. They pay you. You can learn to run. Yeah, parnasah. Okay. <coughs> so his father, though, was also his stepfather, Rav Shimon, heart desire was his son-in-law become a Tamil Chacham and a rabbi, a local rabbi. Can you imagine? He was pushing him to become a rabbi, but the years passed by and never became a rabbi. And the father-in-law was stunned. All his arguments were in vain. The young person, this young man, Israel Meir, would never want to look for a rabbinical position. The young man's wife started pleading with him, please, please, become a rabbi. He says, listen, it's a Mishnah Perkyavot. What does it say? Hate, hate the leadership position. He says, true honor comes from good, honest work and kind deeds. As far as earning a living, a person has to do something, and have faith in Hashem. That's it. That's what he told his wife. As it happens, um, a pulpit in a nearby, nearby town opened up, and they started talking to his old mother, convince your son to become the rabbi, talk to the wife, everyone's trying to convince him to become the rabbi, and he became a rabbi for half a year. How did he become a rabbi in half a year? Uh, in Radin itself. Because uh, when the rabbi left now, they're pushing and pushing. So, he rabbi. so his condition was, you have to listen to me. Okay? If there's a Din Torah, come to me. You have to listen to my guidance. Uh, he made them sign a document that, number one, he's not going to take money. Wow. If a rabbi doesn't take money, that's fantastic. If you get a rabbi who doesn't take money. Every congregation would like to hire the Halatayim. He's, he's, <laughs> he's fantastic and he doesn't take money. You better, you don't have to pay for it. So he made them sign, number one, no money. Number two, they were to forgive him if he makes any errors in judgment. Imagine, he's now the head of the Bedin. If he makes an error in judgment, they have to forgive him in advance. So no money, forgive him judgment. And number three, they had to listen to whatever he said. Okay. So now what happens? A short while later, six months later, local members of the community have a fight between them. They come to the rabbi, he gives a psak, and one of them goes away, doesn't listen to him. Huh? He said, look, takes the uh, deed here, this is what you signed. Gives it back to the elders. He says, I'm patur now. I did my bit. I tried. Not successful. And that's it. I'm walking away. That's it. That was the last time he became a rabbi. Six months he lasted as a rabbi. And that's it. Okay. 
Okay, so that's uh, basically that's the beginning of the Reis uh, Meir. So therefore, he had no wish to be a rabbi in any post. He remained a private, ordinary Jew, so-called ordinary Jew, in the re- in the, radio in the rest of his life. That was his life. To earn enough for his meager needs, he taught Gemara to all the children. He preferred being a melamed to being a rabbi. Better to be a teacher. You're not responsible for the whole town. You're not responsible for what people are doing. You're responsible for your children. You teach your children. So he started teaching the children. And he was very, very successful as a teacher. Very, very, very successful. And not only did he teach children, we're going to see he taught adults as well. He opened many classes in town. And basically, we're going to see he changed the whole town. This town was basically very poor. People were very poor. They were tradespeople. A lot of people didn't have much money. They had small houses. The town was full of ditches, a lot of water everywhere. And people lived a very basic lifestyle. So it's interesting, he didn't move. He didn't have many opportunities to move. The only place he really wanted to move to was Israel. And he made up his mind he's going to go to Israel with his daughter. And they begged him and they begged him until he changed his mind. Later on he changed his mind. He was going to go to Petah Tikva, which was the new yeshuv of Orthodox Jews. The first Orthodox Jewish town in Israel was Petah Tikva. So he was going to go to Petah Tikva. And they wouldn't let him go. So interesting, they wouldn't let him go. How did he influence people? And the answer is by example. His main influence was uh, people would see how he behaved. Okay, so now he's, now how's he, he's, he's teaching children. He also opens a small store. Okay. He had a little bit of money for teaching all the students. It wasn't even enough to live on. His friends and relatives would beg him to take money from them. We'll help you. Take, take, take. <laughs> so people started asking, why don't you take that? Begging you to take. He says, they're only begging me to take because they know I won't take. <laughs> if I take, they wouldn't beg me to take. Yeah, so that's how he pacified people. So he would live by the guidelines in Mishlei, Sone Matanot Yechieh. Shlomo Melech says, whoever hates gifts will live. That was his motto in life. Whoever hates gifts will live. So what happened, he opened a general store. And he prayed a lot. He would say to Hashem, he says, Woe to the smallness of my deeds. What worth is there to my actions compared to your kindnesses that you gave to me, Hashem? Amazing. This is modesty. Hashem's modesty. What have I accomplished? What, what shall I come into the presence of Hashem? How would I dare show my face in shame? He would lament to himself in the middle of the night when he said, Tikkun Chatzot. So that was a f- amazing. Anyway, so he, buy, he buys a store. Four years after his marriage, he got an inheritance of 150 Danish rubles from a sister of his father, his real father. Sister of his real father. She said, here, this money left over from your father's estate. You know, your, blood, your blood relative, your father, your main father, who died when he was 10. He gave 150 rubles from his father's estate. With this money, he opened a small general store, which his wife managed, and he would sit and learn in the baby drash. However, on market day, when trade was very heavy, he would come to help her. But mainly his work was managing the accounts. He had a brilliant mind in terms of math. He could do math. He could go do any kind of math. But he didn't use it. He, would, he refused to learn any secular subjects. Palestine refused to spend his brain on secular subjects. But he would handle the accounts of the store. Okay. So now, he was too honest. Chavetz Chaim is a very bad businessman because he's too honest. What happens? Everything that came to the store, he would make sure, number one, is it was good quality. 
If it's bad quality, you throw it out. Number two, he didn't want to charge. There's the concept of uh, charging too much in Jewish law. One-sixth, shtut. Can't, can't, can't charge more than one-sixth. What? 18%? Nothing. So the markup, the markup is hundreds of percent. Especially fruits and vegetables, boy. It's like 1,000% markup. That's why they always put... You go to supermarkets, the fruit and vegetables right in front. Why? The markup is tremendous on fruits and vegetables. He would make sure everything in his store was good quality and everything in his store was cheap. Plus, he was very, very meticulous. His weights and measures were exact. And he was very, very careful about it. He would wash them every day, make sure there's no grease stuck to them because otherwise it's going to get heavier. Very amazing. So one day he messed up and he found that the weight was greasy. He gave everyone something free. Couldn't find who he, he get who who took who he bought that day. Couldn't find them. So he bought something for the town that everyone could use. This way he could pay them back. So amazing the honesty of the Chavetz Chaim, meticulous honesty in his store. So what happened? Everyone flocks to his store. Good quality, reasonable price. <laughs> One more, no brainer. They all started coming to his store. He tells his wife, "Let's cut down the hours of the store." We're taking business away from the rivals. Imagine, most people would say, yay, we're taking business away from our rivals. So I can't sleep at night. We're taking business away. The Torah says, we just read it last week, and he said, say, uh, two weeks ago, lo tasig gvulrecha. And yes, last week we, we, uh, we read arur. Arur mi tasig gvulrecha. A person who goes and takes from his neighbor's boundary, moves the neighbor's boundary, cursed be a person who... So he was very concerned about taking from the neighbors his, his rival's store's business. He was very concerned he shouldn't take business away from the rival's store. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. So he cut down the hours. Eventually, he tells his wife, close the front door. Whoever knows us will come through the back. And you can't run a store like that. So what happens? Store's making a loss. They close the store. What a shame. They close the store. Okay. What should he do now? He said, listen, the only thing we can do is let's buy a cow. We'll live off the cow's milk. That's it. And that's what they did, eventually. Um, he, he was too honest to be a businessman. His father-in-law tried to get him to, uh, to, to, to go and purchase textile fabrics for Vilna. He was too honest. He could higgle, haggle, and bargain, and cheat, and he didn't do anything. He said, listen, I'm going to buy a cow. That's it. So that was, his, that was his business was. They had a cow. They would live on the milk and sell the milk. And that's how they lived, very simply. I mean, how much money came from the cow? And the land which his father-in-law gave him, he eventually built his renowned yeshiva. But in the meantime, he would plant, they were planting different produce over there. But he made sure the produce was not something that they're trying to sell in the stores next door, because then it would be uh, taking away business. Imagine this guy, was, he was such an honest... Where do you find a businessman like that? That's why he's a bad businessman. Very, very interesting. Very, very bad businessman. So one day he was learning in a nearby town, he sent his wife a very important letter with a wagon driver. So he said, please, do me a favor, give this to my wife. It's a very, very important letter. It contains a very important message. <laughs> the wagon driver wants to know what's so important about this letter. Even though you're not allowed to open someone else's mail, that's the, one of the cherems of Robert Gershaw. Three, three major rules he made. You can't open other people's mail, you can't divorce your wife against the will, and you can't marry more than one wife. But one of them was, you can't read some of the mails. But this wagon driver was so curious, he opened the mail. What did he want? He wanted to find the trade secret. So what he writes to his wife, he says, listen, be very careful with the cow, that you shouldn't eat 
other people's hay. That's what he wrote to his wife. Especially on market day, where there's a lot of non-Jews walking through the town, and they're walking through wagons with hay. Uh, make sure they, she, the alcohol will not steal from a non-Jew. Because from a Jew, less than Shaveh Pruta, a Jew, Mochel. A non-Jew is not Mochel, even a little drop. Make sure, especially non-Jewish. Please, make sure that this cow will not pull out the hay from someone else and eat the hay. That's the secret message he sent his wife. You know, kind of person. This is amazing. So he, would, he had no peace of mind for his entire life on account of his business of his younger years. Maybe I cheated someone. Maybe I didn't give them a fair amount. Maybe I charged too much. He couldn't sleep at night. In, later, in his later years, he's thinking about his business. Oh, how can you do that? How can you live like that? Okay. Amazing. There's medication for that now. Too. Yeah, today they give medication. <laughs> so what happened? He said, I'm going to make up for all the misdeeds I did in my past by donating 500 zlotties for the public welfare. He built a well for everyone to use, just in case he had taken something from someone in the town. He built a well for everyone in the town. And that's halcha, by the way. A person stole from someone, they don't know who he stole from. They should do something for the public use. That's why the person who he stole from will also have benefit from it. So that was his, that's what he did. He built a well for the whole town, imagine. Okay. He did not wish to be a rabbi. He was unable to be a shopkeeper. However, he was a teacher. He was the best teacher. So, to avoid any waste of precious time, he said, I'll teach. So I'm learning to write and teach at the same time. It's not a waste of time. I'm learning to write and teach it. So what happened is, um, the concept of the yeshiva became his major ideal. For him, a yeshiva was not just a yeshiva, it was a Beit Mikdash. Why? Because he was a Kohen. He's the Kohen of the Beit Mikdash, of the Beit Midrash. He became the Kohen of the Beit Midrash. <coughs> and ministering in the sanctuary of Hashem, and teach Hashem's laws and rules to Beit Yaakov and, and Israel. So he was ready to make the biggest personal sacrifice for the existence of this yeshiva. He said, without yeshivot, the Torah will not endure, and authentic Judaism will vanish, heaven forbid. So here he's building yeshiva. Um, and from the start, he was ready to, sacrifice his own personal welfare for the yeshiva, to make Torah endure. And he would quote, we know that Yeheskel, Yeheskel the prophet, he was called Yeheskel ben Buzi. Who's Buzi? His father. But that wasn't his real name. His real name was Berachia, which is a beautiful name. Berachia, Hashem blessed. Yeheskel's father's name is Berachia. But it was changed to Buzi because it says people disgraced him. Try to teach people Torah, he disgraced him. They changed his name to Buzi. And the word Boz, Boz is disgrace. So imagine. He said, if Yehezkel's father could be disgraced for teaching Torah, I can be disgraced also for teaching Torah. I'm going to go around. I'm going to try and build the yeshiva. So, um, interesting. Um, the first big yeshiva was right, Rav Chaim Velazhin. Rav Velazhin, student of the Vilna Gaon, built a big yeshiva. And Rav Chaim Velazhin was the Rosh Shiva. And then it went down to Rav Chaim Berlin, Rav Chaim Berlin, right? Because the Shiva of Velazhin. Eventually, what happened was they closed the Velazhin Yeshiva. Why? Because the Russians wanted them to teach secular subjects in the Yeshiva. So it's better to close the Yeshiva. Imagine, close the Yeshiva rather than teach secular subjects. But by then, Velazhin already had branches around. So one of the first students um, who came 
to build other yeshivot was Rav Yosef, head of the religious court, a critic. Okay, he built another yeshiva, and other other great students built other yeshivot. And the Chavetz Chaim says, "I want to build the yeshiva." So what happens in Radin? Radin, where there was very little Torah, um, he wants to build the yeshiva. But what happened was, after many years of studying, strain of study got too much for him. And he got very sick. The Havetz Chaim got very sick for over a year. He was very sick in bed. The doctor said, you're not allowed to touch a book. He couldn't study for over a year. It was terrible. He did too much. He tried to do too much. He tried to study too much. So for over a year, he did not open a single sefer of Torah. Even tefillah, he couldn't concentrate. His mind could not focus. Imagine, so he was in bed for over a year. And because of that, he did a kind of teshuva. His teshuva was... From now on, I'm going to look after myself. I would agree with this one. From now on, fixed times to learn, fixed times to sleep, fixed times to eat. I'm not going to start trying to learn around the clock and not sleep and not eat on time. I'm going to eat and sleep on time. I learned the hard way. Because overdoing it, tafasta miruba lo tafasta, you grab too much, you grab nothing. It led him to not learn for over a year. So from that time on, he was very, very regulated in his behavior. Not only was he regulated, he regulated all the students in the yeshiva. He would come at 10 o'clock at night and switch off all the lights in the yeshiva, the lamps. Go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep. You will learn tomorrow. Make sure you eat on time. Tell students, make sure you eat on time. I want to make sure you're all healthy so you can learn more. If we're not healthy, we can't learn more. That's the trouble. That's the problem. So we try and overdo it and then end up with nothing. One year, imagine he got paid 50 rubles a year for teaching Torah. 50 rubles a year. So on one Pesach, Ere Pesach, he gets 50 rubles, one year's salary. He's on his way home. And he hears there's a planned marriage of a poor local orphan girl. And she's short of a dowry, and the marriage is going to be cancelled. Without thinking, he takes the 50 rubles, imagine one year's salary. He gives it to the girl. Psh, amazing, amazing. Chesed. He says, I can always manage to borrow money for my trip home but she needs the money now. Wow, amazing. How many 50 rubles, I don't know, but it was a year's salary, so you can imagine what a year's salary is today. How many children did he have? One second, we'll get that. Rather, we got, I think three. One second. Okay. The study of Torah is quite widespread in the early 20th century, flourishing in most all the cities and small towns of Poland and Lithuania. Every Beit Midrash would literally have to study for old and young, the long Beit Midrash tables were fully occupied by students of all ages. Some were learning Talmud, some were learning Halakha, different books. Even those who did not understand anything would come to hear. They didn't understand anything. would just come and sit down and listen to the... There was no TV, no radio, no nothing. There was no interaction. What they do? Their main job was learning Torah. Everyone would learn Torah all day long. They finished their work. It's amazing. They had workmen societies. They had the Uchapa Society for learning Mishnah. Amazing how these people learn it. You had the, the, the storekeepers, society for learning Torah. Each one had their own society to learn. Um, you know, I've looked in the library, in the, one of the big uh, libraries in New York. You'll find a stamp, the Woodchoppers Society for Learning Mishnah. Woodchoppers, who can learn, read, and, and write. I mean, you can, in those days, no one could read and write. Woodchoppers, the Jewish Woodchoppers, were learning Mishnah every day. 
spiritual leaders of the generation. Rav Yaakov Brit, who was his teacher. Rav Yisrael Salanta was alive at that time. Rav Nathalie Sviyu, the Berlin of Velazhen. He was a
what a person has to pay back the talk. If there's no financial loss, he didn't talk about it. Amazing. So there's only five halachot in the whole Shulchan Aruch regarding Lashonara. Very strange. Because Lashonara is such an important thing. However, the Rambam, in his halachot, in his halachot of Deot, um, laws of character traits, he does bring down in chapter 7 laws of Lashonara. So I want to go through the Rambam with you just a little bit because it's very relevant. And then we can go back to the Chavisayim. Now, the Rambam says, a person who speaks bad about his friend transgresses the negative commandments. It says, Lo telech rachil be'amecha. There's a parashat Kedoshim. Parashat Kedoshim, where it says, V'aftad recha kamocha. It also talks about not speaking Lashonara. <coughs> so a person who speaks Lashonara definitely doesn't love his friend. He's probably transgressing V'aftad recha kamocha as well. And even though he doesn't get lashed because it's, it's a love she'ed said, there's no action. Speech is not considered an action. It's a very big problem. Avon Gadol, who Rambam says, a very big sin. The Gorem Larog Nefashot Rabot Bishra, it causes many Jews to be killed. This is something you can't see. People die in a plague, people die. It's all because Lashar. And therefore, the Torah says, straight after, Lo Telech Rachbir Memecha, Lo Tamod Al Damrecha, don't stand by your neighbor's blood. What's the connection between Lashar and Standing by your neighbor's blood idly. Person who speaks Lashonara is going to cause death to other people. Psh, horrible. The Gemara says causes death to three people: the one who speaks, the one who listens, and the one who is being spoken about. At least three. But Rama says many people. What is a talebearer? Person says, "I went to so and so place, and I saw so and so doing this. And I heard this about so and so, and this about so gossip, basically." However, there's something more than talebearing. What is that? That's Lashonara. What is Lashonara? It's true and bad. True and bad. So tailberry is just saying telling tales. I saw this and I saw this, he did this, he did that. Doesn't have to be bad. Lashanara is it's bad and true. He did this. That's true. Most people say, but it's true. That is the definition of Lashanara. Lashanara is true. It's bad and true. The third category is even worse, and that is Sheker. Say something bad which is lies. Oh boy. Motsi Shemra. Worst. Motsi Shemra is the worst. And uh, a person who's Motsi Shemra is called worse. That's a Motsi Shemra, that's lies. And then you have a gossip monger. That's a person who all they do all day long is say, speak gossip. He's called a Baal Lashonara, the owner of Lashonara, gossip monger. He sits down, everyone, I need information, comes to this guy. Well, where was this guy today? He went here, he went there, he did this, he did that. He knows everything about everyone. Um, and that is a gossip monger, and that is a Baal he's the owner of Lashonara. He becomes the main gossiper in town. Okay. And uh, finally, we come to Avak Lashonara. Uh, what is Avak Lashonara? And the answer is sarcasm. I don't want to talk about so and so. You don't want to talk about it, it means there's something to talk about. Okay. Or being sarcastic. Ah, look at so who does he think he is? Okay, he is, I didn't say anything bad. So something which can be interpreted good or bad is called the dust of Lashonara. And the Gemara says that most people transgress the dust of Lashonara. We're all guilty of dust of And dust of Lashonara could also be if you talk good about someone and someone says, no, you don't know that person. He's really not so great. So you cause that person to talk bad. I didn't say anything bad. I said something good. That's called Avak Lashonara since it's going to be interpreted 
find the other person something bad. So it's very dangerous to talk to people about people. Because sometimes you say something good, they'll say something bad. You've got to cause them to say something bad. Happened to me last week and I got a shock. I didn't expect that person to say something bad. Say something good about someone. Oh, yeah, you don't know that person. Not so great. Oh, oh, okay. That's end of conversation. Walk away. Okay, and that's the Rambam. That's basically what the Rambam said. That's it. It's one short chapter. It's not even the whole chapter. And then he goes on about uh, not taking vengeance. Lord in Kom, Lord in Torah. That's the Rambam. That's it. Shulchan Arbeli talks about it for Halachon, the whole Shulchan Aruch. And mostly to do with financial arrangements. Rambam, 7-8 Halachon, in the whole Rambam, Lashon What happens? Every Jew does not know there's an Isur Lashon Jews on the street do not know there's a restriction of Lashon Most people did not, were not aware, can you imagine? Living in a place, they're not, at least today we're aware. We may not be careful, but we're aware of it. Okay. There's a difference between being aware, what's the difference between being aware and not aware? Rishon Salanta says, if you're aware and you sigh, that's already a big kapara. But it says, you know what? I know I'm not allowed to say this, but I said it. I feel bad about it. Yisrael Salanta says, that's already good. That's already one part of teshuva. Feels bad. Guilt. One part of you. Maybe he'll move to the next step. Stop. So what happens? Chavaz Chaim writes this book. I should have brought the book. It's a massive book. About the Lord's Lashon Rabbah. But it's not just the book. It's also the, what he, all the commentary which brings you all the sources, which shows his vast knowledge of the whole Torah. It tells you how many positive commandments are involved in Lashon Ara and how many negative commandments a person breaks by speaking Lashon Ara. Now what happens is, he's an unknown. He wants to go around to get Haskamot from the big rabbis. So he goes from rabbi to rabbi. Rabbis, please rabbi, can you have a look through these manuscripts and see if they're worthwhile printing? And every rabbi he went to and it has bear my Chaim. Yeah. It has uh, laws in the top. And at the bottom, it gives you the commentary, which is all the sources, all the sources. So all the rabbis went to were dumbfounded. They commanded all the greats, from Israel Salanta, the Briskarav, all the greats. Uh, they see this work. And, wow, who is this guy? Never heard of him. No one ever heard of him. Here he wrote a sefer. Rabbi wouldn't put down his sefer. Would have it on his table all the time. He tells his student, "This is a shulchan aruch. This is another shulchan aruch of lashon hara. This is the shulchan aruch of lashon hara. This is the book, the book to read about lashon hara. No one ever had it before." So they welcomed it with open arms. They wrote many haskamot. They got many haskamot from all the gedolim. Okay, now how is he going to you know, distribute the book? This becomes for a while his main job. He is the distributor. Before he prints it, he wants to get a thousand subscribers who are willing to buy it when it comes out. So he goes around, makes some sign paper, one ruble. You're going to get a copy of it. He didn't take money. He was scared. If he took the money, he wouldn't be able to find them later on to fit the book. He, he'd rob them. So he wouldn't take any money. He just makes a sign. I, I, I uh, oblige myself to buy the book when it's printed. And then he went to borrow money to print the book. First, he would get the subscribers. I don't want to borrow money and then I won't be able to pay it back. First, I get the script writers. And then I print the book, and then I go and market the book. How does he market the book? He never told anyone he was the author. It's as if he is the shaliach of the author. Who's the author? Oh, I don't know. He, doesn't, he wants to be, remain anonymous than the author. <laughs> so you go around, bags of books, come to a bed midrash, pull out his books. People come to pray, see the books, someone buy, not buy. He never pushed it. Never pushed it. 
This is the price, one ruble for a book. Sometimes people want to give him more. No, this is the price. I don't take more. There was a rich man, it says, who gave him 100 rubles on the way out. And Havasai didn't pay. He thought he gave him one ruble. Put it in his pocket. He gets to the town he went to. He sees 100 rubles unaccounted for. He couldn't sleep that night. Goes back to the town. Starts announcing in public. Whoever gave me 100 rubles, please come and take it. Please come and take it. I beg you, please. I can't sleep. Please come and take it. And the, the guy didn't want to take it. He was a rich man. He wanted to give him a donation. Until finally he had mercy on the Chavetz He saw it pleading, and he took it back. Amazing. He wouldn't take more than what the book was worth. That was his policy. No free lunches for the Chavetz Never took gifts for anyone. Amazing man. Amazing. But people didn't put two and two together. He was the author of the book. However, in certain places, they would ask him to speak on behalf of the book. When he spoke, everyone listened. He was a tremendous orator. Muhammad Chaim was a tremendous orator. He spoke from the heart. He knew what he was saying. His face would light up. And all the rabbis who saw him talk, they said, this is the guy who wrote the book. <laughs> and some, some of the rabbis would challenge him. Says Rav Cook's father saw the Chavetz Chaim bringing the books to sale. He said, let's check this guy out. See who this is. Trying to see if he speaks Lashon Ram. Doesn't speak Lashon Ram. He said, this must be the author of the book. He didn't challenge him, though. He was too nice to challenge him. But some rabbis would challenge him, say, listen, I'm the rabbi of the town. Tell me, are you the author of the book? He was forced to say yes. He wouldn't tell lies. So it's interesting. And uh, the great rabbis would get their students to try and cause him to speak Lashon Ram. And, you know, he had every opportunity to speak Lashon Ram. Why? You have all the maskilim speak bad things about the maskilim. They're trying to... He could say, you know, it's a mitzvah to talk bad about these people. And open his mouth. Wouldn't say anything bad about anyone. Wouldn't talk about other people. That was a greatness. He said he could talk for hours, but he wouldn't speak about people. Yeah, amazing. He had enough things to say. He could talk for hours. He had a conversation with him. You wouldn't think he's limiting himself because he had a normal conversation. When it came to other people, though, he wouldn't talk. Very simple. So, okay, so I want to talk about some of the books he wrote. We have a few more minutes, just a few more minutes. Chavetz Chaim means that's based as a pasuk which the book is based on Laws of Lashon Hara. that was his first book published in 1873 and he wrote Shmirat Guarding the Tongue which is a discussion of the philosophy behind it so two books uh, then he wrote very amazing Mishnah Brura the Mishnah Brura is a commentary on the Orachim Orachim was the first volume of the Shulchan Aruch which talks about daily affairs daily laws, including all the festivals, including Shabbat. And if you just read the Shulchan Aruch by itself, you're lost. Without a commentary, a person is lost completely. Why the Shulchan Aruch says, this book, I'm writing a Shulchan Aruch, it's not a book by itself. To understand this book, you have to read my Beit Yosef, which is my commentary on the tour. No one reads the Beit Yosef. I'm writing this book as a reminder of what I wrote in my commentary, my big commentary. This is just a small Reminder, this serves as a small reminder. So now you open the Shulchan Aruch. You can make mistakes in law. I've seen people make mistakes in halakha by reading the Shulchan Aruch. It's completely different. Habit Chaim said, I need to write a commentary on the Shulchan Aruch because people make learning the Shulchan Aruch cold without the Beit Yosef, making mistakes in halakha. So he wrote what's called a Mishnah Brura, a Mishnah which is explained. He explains very fundamentally the Shulchan Aruch. So you read it and you'll say, yeah, not so great about it. But without it, you can't, you can't understand Shulchan Aruch. And then his greatness was Biur Halakha, where he shows you his mastery of Halakha. On the right side of the page you'll see 
a commentary called Biru Halakha, which explains, it goes into really deep details from the Gemara backwards all the way down to present day about Halakha and Lamase, how he got to the Halakha. And there you see his genius. He knew everything, he knew a lot, he knew so much. That was his main legal work on the Shulchan Aruch, Mishnah Biru Unfortunately, he only did the first uh, volume of the Shulchan, which is the Ora Chaim, which is a daily mundane tefillah, uh, Shabbat, kash- uh, not Kashrut, um, uh, the Hagim, all the Hagim uh, are included. Um, it was written, um, published um, in 18... So it, every volume was on different dates. They put them out in 1884, second volume 1886, third volume 1891, fourth volume 1898, fifth volume 1902. It took him a while to write it. See how much effort he put into writing this. I don't, I don't know what time he wrote it. In his 30s. In his 30s, he started. It took him a while. Then he wrote a volume, Avat Chesed, on the mitzvah of Chesed. I mean, this is beautiful. It's gorgeous. He was a master of chesed. On, the lend, on lending money to the needy. This idea of a gemach. He said it's better to give a gemach, a loan, than give money, a staka. Why? Because a loan you can recycle. And so you can do many mitzvot with the same money. So you give it to this guy to help him. He pays you back. You give it to another guy to help you. It's the same money being recycled. So every town, even today in America, we have a gemach in town. A free loan society. Free loan society. The Havetz Chaim said it's a mitzvah to start free loan societies. Chesed. He wrote one volume for the Jews in the army. Machane Yisrael. Amazing, amazing. How did this guy, who had no concept of armies and fire and this and that, write a halakha book for people in the army? The minimum, he gave them the, the shata dachak. In other words, that's the ideal way to do a mitzvah. But people in the army don't have time to do a mitzvah ideally gave the most basic minimums halakha. What do you do when you're in the army as a Jew? So this way, the Jews in the army who were forced to be in the army, they were conscripted by the Tsar. They had a book they could read to know what to do. The situation it's amazing. He wrote a book on Teferet Adam, which is about the importance of a Jew having a beard. And Peot, he had Peot as well. Teferet Adam, the, the glory of a person. He wrote a book of Geder Olam, you can see already in those days women stopped covering their hair. About the importance of women covering their hair. So whenever he saw a need, he would write a book. Instead of teaching people, he said the most effective thing is let's get books and send the books out. He wrote a book called Kinnit Yisrael, two volumes. Shem Olam, Homat Hadat, which is the importance of a person to study Torah. And also to encourage others to study, as well as the need to create groups in every city that people could study. So he has, a, he has many books he wrote. Unbelievable. He was a prolific author, a really prolific author. And one of the most famous books is the Sefer HaMitzvot Katsar. He wrote a, a volume, we have the, he just bought it, a volume about all the mitzvot that apply today. So we have the Mitzvot Hagadol, which is the smug. We have the Rambam, Sefer HaMitzvot, 630 mitzvot. All of them apply today. He just tells you which mitzvot apply today on a daily basis. Not so bad. Um, okay. Then he writes a book about Sipita Lishua. We know when a person dies, the Quran says there's three, at least three questions they ask them. One of them was, were, were you honest in business? Palestine is very big in honesty in business. Did you fix times to learn Torah? And he's wrote about learning Torah. And did you hope for salvation? He wrote a book about hoping for salvation. It's one of the tefillot we say every day in the Shemun Esrei. Et semach David Abdechat Please, Hashem, send us the descendant of David Amelech. 
And that's Tzipita Lishua. We pray for the Mashiach to come. And over there, some people add Tzipiti Kalayom. And I hope for it every day. Kaviti Vitzipiti. I hope that I desire it every day. It's a mitzvah to desire it every day. So you read a book, Desiring Mashiach. It's amazing, all the different books he wrote. Um, and uh, that's it. I, I, have, I have, I'm very lucky. I looked up and I found a real copy of his last will. Okay. And you see how meticulous he was in all his affairs, so there shouldn't be any fights among his children. It's a copy of his last will, which you can download, you can find it today. You can download it as a translation. And over there it tells you where everything goes. Number one is he has two sons. I have two sons. One is a bechor. That is my son, the Rav, the Gaon and Torah and fear of God. Moreno Harav Ariyezev Hakohen. That's where the word Zev came from. Ariyezev Hakohen. Other one is an outstanding bachur who will be 18 years old this month. Master Aaron Hakohen. I also have one life. There's a second wife. I had two wives in a long time. And those people lived more than 40 years. Uh, that's it. Yeah, second wife. And, uh, and he had one daughter. And his daughter married a great man in Torah. She, he says, Moreno Harav, Reb Menachem Yosef Zaks. And that's the family that started the yeshiva in New York State. The Zaks family. His, uh, through his wife, uh, through his daughter. His daughter's husband, the Zaks. And he, he goes through everything. Who gets to copy? Who's, who gets the plates to his books? He owned the plates in those days. You prepare a plate. The printer would prepare a plate of the of the, uh, the metal stamp for the book, and then they used that stamp to print the book. He he owned the plates, and he decided which son is going to get the plates, who's going to get the profits, who's going to get the rights to the books. He has a will, a will. He wrote a will so there will be no fights in his family. Baruch Hashem, there were no fights in his family. All his children were God fearing till the end. I think one granddaughter did move away a bit. But until uh, today, it's the sentence of the Chavetz is still going. So we're going to end off over here. That's the tonight. Don't forget to light a candle in memory of the Chavetz And please make a bracha in memory of the Chavetz You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.